Good morning, Christ Church. It's an honor to be here. I am, uh, for those of you who do not know, I am the pastor of our uptown campus, Christ Church Washington Heights, and it is good to be here with you. Rumi, the Sufi mystic, reminds us that we are guests on this great good earth and that our every breath should be of gratitude to the host. I might add that it is the gift of many hosts that allows us to embark upon the journey of life. God, the creator from whom we come, a womb that holds the process, and then many individuals and places that give us a chance to grow into who we can become. And while the circle of life is the same for all of us, we all start somewhere and we all end somewhere, we know that opportunity is not the same for all of us. Privilege grants more ample opportunities to thrive for some, while disadvantage holds others hostage in stagnation. In our American context, we understand the metaphor of a tale of two cities. For those societal aspects that capture how some of us thrive and some of us barely survive. In his book, Fragile Neighborhoods, Seth Kaplan, an expert on fragile states, reflects on how the stories of neighborhoods generate narratives that may not always be accurate. The inner city, often described as the bedrock of death, disease, and decay, may also hold life resilience, and aspirational flourishing. And the aspired better areas with bigger houses, better schools, and fancier zip codes, nonetheless may hide psychological and spiritual dearth, often more complicated to diagnose in appearance, but still evident. The world as we know it in our towns and neighborhoods may not always capture the best of who we are or how we aspire to be. Think of New York City. This is a fantastic city for some of us. I know that I can escape the hustle and bustle of the city, but as a city kid, I end up missing New York City when I am away. And trust me, there are days that I don't love the city. I think of those days as a combination of delayed subways and getting bumped into trains and when a cyclist almost hits me every other day. <laughs> those days I dream of life outside of the city, maybe on a farm or a beach. Still, it's that Frank Sinatra song that captures this place. If you can make it in this place, you can make it anywhere. The echo of that song reminds me that this is a neat place. New York City, even though it may be the annex of hell for some. A televangelist once called described New York City as the Mecca of sin and the citadel of worldliness. Honestly, hearing New York City described that way makes it a bit more appealing to me. <laughs> Geographic areas hold reputations, and beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Some may not be impressed by New York City, and that's okay. Our gospel lesson presents us with a sneering Nathaniel wondering about a place called Nazareth. 
Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Small and obscure, the village of Nazareth is not a famous nor glamorous place. But this does not mean that it is infamous. Its lack of fame did not signal impropriety. Scholars wrestle with what Nathaniel's skeptical question was about. And some insinuate that upon hearing from his friend Philip that this Jesus he was talking about was from Nazareth, Nathaniel, who was from Cana, a rival town, wanted to snub any popular possibility from Nazareth. I imagine that Nathaniel had prejudice and stereotypes about Nazareth. He had a those people from there attitude and would have been an excellent candidate for cancel culture in our days. But I take his question with understanding how possibilities can be generated from places that may be questionable in our lives. I identify with Nathaniel in wondering about places that seem so doubtful that we wonder if anything of worth can come from this place. Whether it is a place of loss, of pain, or frustration, can anything good come out of it? We've all probably been in this place where we wonder what good can come from such a complicated place. The spiritual context of the question is, where can meaning be found in these hardest of places? or these seemingly groundless places of our journeys? Can the mystery of God appear in the loneliest seasons of our stories, where confusion and disappointment hold us captives, and we can't move forward because it seems that something good can't proceed? Is God possible in a place like that? There are many places like this in our stories, We may not feel that we are living up to our best selves. We may be dealing with job and relationship issues, illness, aging, or experiencing loss or disappointment with a loved one. Can anything good be found in this place that we dread and rather not be in? I want to tell you this morning that there is a purposeful, impossible God in this space that seems unavailable to our logician's mind. While in theological circles, a high Christology speaks of a Jesus that came from above to reveal the transcendent reality of God, it is a low Christology, a human Jesus, that often makes sense for us. For us who are trying to figure out what this journey of life is all about. The human Jesus gives us a glimpse of how faith, hope, and love come together in the ambiguity of existence without necessarily knowing the particularities of what all this thing we call life is about. In the small storefront churches that nurtured me in faith and the knowledge of grace, while I heard theologies that made me squirm, I also listened and heard a dialectic of the mystery of God and Jesus. Not merely as Jesus the King or Jesus the Christ, but of Jesus de Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth, the one from Nazareth, as told in other depictions of the gospel, is the reflection of the one who can be with us in all places of life, in places of unpopularity, uncertainty, and perplexity. 
Jesus of Nazareth is the one who can show up in the ghetto, in the barrio, in the bodega, in the inner city, in the Park Avenue townhouse, in the train cart, in the alley, in the bar, and yes, even the club. All to remind us that God is available to us no matter where we are or who we are. Jesus of Nazareth reminds us that our stories matter to God and that no one is outside of the possibility of grace. And that grace becomes relevant in our lives to encourage us to see that we are not alone in the world. Nathaniel in the Gospel lesson will come to terms immediately with the grace that was at work in his life without him even knowing. But our stories are a bit more complicated. Grace sometimes involves challenging processes. Martin Luther King Jr., whose birthday is celebrated tomorrow, is a figure that represents what it means to grapple with God's grace. As a modern prophet of social justice, Dr. King often wrestled in the civil rights movement about whether something good could come out of so much evil. In a small book called Extraordinary Encounters with God, Walter Walker notes how King grappled with his call one evening at the age of 27. Late one night in January 1956, his phone rang after Dr. King had gone to bed. An angry voice with a racist expletive told him, Listen, we've taken all we want from you. Before the next week, you'll be sorry you ever came to Montgomery. King later said, I hung up, but I couldn't go to sleep. All of my fears seemed to come down at me at once. I had reached the saturation point. I got out of bed and began to walk the floor. Finally, I went to the kitchen and heated a pot of coffee. I was ready to give up. With my cup of coffee sitting untouched before me, I tried to think of a way to move out of the picture without appearing cowardly. In this state of exhaustion, when my courage had all but gone, I decided to take my problem to God. With my head in my hands, I bowed over the kitchen table and prayed aloud. The words I spoke to God that midnight are still vivid in my memory. I am here taking a stand for what I believe is right. But now I am afraid. The people are looking to me for leadership. And if I stand before them without strength and courage, they too will falter. I am at the end of my powers. I have nothing left. I've come to the point where I can't face it alone. At that moment, King says that he experienced the presence of the divine as he never experienced God before. He says, it seemed as though I could hear the quiet assurance of an inner voice saying, stand up for righteousness. Stand up for truth. And God will be at your side forever. Almost at once my fears began to go. My uncertainty disappeared. I was ready to face anything. And he would have to be ready to face anything. 
For 12 years after that experience, he gave his all. Grappling with this question of whether anything good could come from a country fraught with racism. And his soul anchored in God led King to believe that a new chapter was possible for such a broken country. It was hope that would lead him on. A mantra that led his walk with God was uttered by Reverend Fred, Fred Shuttlesworth, who in a fundraiser here in Harlem at Harry Belafonte's house, exclaimed, you have to be prepared to die before you can begin to live. It was King grappling with the question of can something good come out of this segregated country that led him to say in another place, we are here because of our love for democracy, because of our deep-seated belief that democracy transformed from thin paper to thick action is the greatest form of government on earth. As noted in the documentary King in the Wilderness, the civil rights movement gained a different function in King's life because it ceased to be political. For him, it was spiritual work. It was the work of God through Dr. King and in those recruited regardless of demographic that projected a dream greater than self. Once they could connect to something greater than themselves, they could join this prophetic dreamer in envisioning a world committed to, to addressing injustice of all kinds. Because injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And it is our work before us, beloved, as we deal with our collective Nazareth, that our demographic realities are much more than they seem. We are grappling with meaning beyond what we see, and courage is required more than ever if we want to leave a better world for our descendants. A beautiful African proverb states, we do not inherit the world, the earth, from our ancestors. We borrow it from our grandchildren. We must move from the binaries that erase many of us so that we can embrace the expansive grace of God in all of creation. But we can't move into the expansiveness without recognition that we live under the threat of racism in all structures of society and that some are treated less than others. The black experience in America reminds us that even with some strides towards change, there is still a whole lot of work to do. Those of us following the way of Jesus have a challenge before us. As Dr. King reminded us, even this hour in which we gather is one of the most segregated in America. Let us not be fooled by the appearance of diversity if we even see that. More than ever, we must question our practices, institutions, and ways of being and move from dream to action working for a beloved community that is more than talk. More than ever, we need a community that is committed to accountability, calling out the sin of racism among the other isms of our times of sexism, xenophobia, heterosexism, transphobia, and all the parameters that isolate us from one another. 
And more than ever, we cannot undermine how white supremacy hinders our ability to live into our best potential as the people of God. Dr. King asked in his sermon, Our God is Moving, how long will it take? He said, I come to say to you this afternoon, however difficult the moment, however frustrating the hour, it will not be long. Because truth pressed to earth will rise again. How long? Not long because no lie can live forever. How long? Not long because you still reap what you sow. How long? Not long because the arm of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. The witness of King reminds me that I'm committed to a world that will grow into God's potential. And I'm incredibly excited because regardless of the Nazareth, there is grace and there is God. And wonderful things are still possible even in the shadow of the darkest valley. This time that we get to spend together is a rehearsal of trusting the mystery that brought us into being that there is something even possible in the yet to come. I get to see this in parts at our uptown campus. This afternoon after I leave this space, I will go up and celebrate worship. And I'll be baptizing several of migrant children who have arrived at our uptown campus with their families, trying to find goodness in an unknown world to them. I will invite the congregation to pray in thanksgiving, saying, Thank you, God, for these beloved children, that as they become part of the body that is the church, we may be reminded that we must create a better world for them so that with our support, they will grow in their potential for you and for the communities they will be a part of. In that same vein, I bring King's connection to who he called the brown saint of India, Gandhi. In essence, King and Gandhi and God's love for us will ground what I am channeling to those kids in the sacrament of baptism and for their families and for the community. And it is Gandhi's prayer for peace that will hold our hope as it did for Dr. King. So I invite you in this moment, look around the room, look at someone in this space, bring someone to mind and pray as Gandhi did, saying, I offer you peace. I offer you love. I offer you friendship. I see your beauty. I hear your need. I feel your feelings. My wisdom flows from the highest source. I salute that source in you. Let us work together for unity and peace. Amen.